Welcome. This is Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you are listening to the Hashtag STRask podcast. So, Greg, are you ready for this first question? I'm not sure. (laughs) I'll let you know in a minute. All right. This question comes from Ryan. How does one respond to this? If abortion is legally deemed to be murder, then miscarriages are manslaughter using the same logic. No, I'm not ready for that. No, I am ready for that. And it's 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 silly. Okay, if shooting someone in the head is murder, then when someone falls off a cliff by accident, that must be manslaughter. That's the parallel, which is silly. Okay, miscarriages are when human beings die by accident. Now, in a miscarriage at any stage, is a human life taken? Sure, absolutely. Manslaughter has to do with culpability of another human being for that event. I don't, I don't know why this is so difficult for people to see the distinction. It's, it's, it's discouraging in terms of people's ability to think morally, that they don't see the difference between human action that causes a human death and natural circumstances that causes a human death. Mm-hmm. If somebody causes a... Okay, let's say I punch a pregnant woman in the stomach and she has a miscarriage. Okay, guess who's responsible for that miscarriage? I am. My assault caused it. Therefore, in the state of California, I would be held responsible for a homicide. Why? It's just a miscarriage. Yeah, but you caused the miscarriage. But if the miscarriage was a spontaneous miscarriage that no one caused, then no one's culpable. Why is this difficult? Mm -hmm. It's the same as if you had a child who had a a disease who died. We don't charge the parents with murder because the child has a disease and dies. This is this is just natural causes. But I do hear I do hear this question a lot, Greg, because people are that's one of the things they say against abortion laws. And they say, well, if you have a miscarriage, then they're going to come and they're going to come after you and put you in jail. Maybe, of course, I just answered the question. I didn't use a tactical approach, but I guess the tactical approach would, why would miscarriages be manslaughter? Maybe that's a simple question I could ask. Well, why would that be manslaughter? What is manslaughter? Manslaughter is when somebody acts in a way that, to some degree, inadvertently causes the death of another person. This is why there's a distinction between, I use the wording there, to distinguish homicide, first, second degree, or whatever, from manslaughter. Manslaughter may be culpable, but it isn't like you went out of your way to try to take somebody's life, either by planning it, or lying in wait, or by a spontaneous action of anger, and then you pulled out a gun and shot somebody. No, this is something you did that you shouldn't have done that resulted in somebody's death, and so you have a culpability for manslaughter. That's what manslaughter is. So how is that, how is that parallel with a miscarriage? It's not. It's not. And I, again, I, I, do, I, I can understand why people would argue this way, because they're grasping at straws and they're trying to throw anything out there that would make, that would sanitize their own commitment to having the freedom to take the life of an unborn child. Okay? What I don't understand is why any pro-lifer wouldn't be able to answer that simply on reflection. What's manslaughter? 
What's miscarriage? They're different in morally mm-hmm. relevant ways, and no duh. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it can be tricky helping people see that. So I, I'm sure uh, Ryan will appreciate with yeah. that. The uh, yes, thank you the for question. Asking. Yes, Ryan and my. Uh, before we got that, before we started, Amy says, "Try not to get too upset at these questions." And <laughs> so you, she, she, and she predictably understood my own these... incredulity. Uh, you know, at these kinds of challenges. Okay, what's the next one? All right, these are all somewhat controversial ones. So here, here's one from Natasha. In regard to requesting pro-transgender and pro-homosexuality explicit books be removed from the children's section of a library. How do you counteract responses such as, if we do that for for your reasons, then we would have to accommodate others asking for the removal of religious books? Okay, so the question then becomes, is it ever legitimate to restrict books in a children's section in a library? Is it ever? So I'm going to take my tactical approach here. What I'm trying to do now is just lay a foundation of what rules are we going to follow? Is it ever legitimate? Yeah, I think most people would say, yeah, it is legitimate. What would legitimize such an act? Well, um, I'm imagining here, but this would be my response, and and I think most even-handed persons would think this way. Um, If, say, for example, um, the books were either beyond... Uh, a child's or young person's ability to handle the material uh, and therefore would be in some measure psychologically harmful to them or maybe encouraged things that would be harmful to them or for others. So you don't put a book in there that teaches an eight-year-old how to make a bomb, for example. All right. So, okay, good. So psychologically harmful to the young person or encourage them to do something that would be harmful to them or to others. Good. Now we got a rule down on the table. Um, Does that apply uh, to religious books? Now, I think there are going to be some very extreme people who say, yes, it applies to religious books because you're scaring kids into believing in hell when there is no hell. But, of course, in that situation— it's only wrong to scare them about hell if there is no hell. <laughs> if there is a hell, then it's a warning about how to escape it. All right. But anyway, there may be a matter of debate there. But then the question is, are trans- transgender books and homosexual books, are those uh, disqualified for young people for any of those reasons? And for one, yeah, we're sexualizing children who ought to be protected from having to consider things that they're just not psychologically capable capable of managing. Let's wait until adolescence before we begin to talk about those things. So that's challenging, difficult, and it also may encourage some kids to misdiagnose and then ask to have body parts cut off, okay, um, which is happening. So, there, so the reasons why someone would restrict books in a in a, uh, a children's section of a library apply to those books just mentioned, but don't apply to religious books. And I would say, even though on both sides there may be some debate, it seems much more obvious they those apply to books on uh, on sexuality for kids 
and don't apply to religious books, which largely teach virtue. <laughs> so it's comparing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. But you have to get the rule down first. It's And this is kind of the way I think the left is approaching us, people on the left. It's like, well, whose rules? We got to go by your rules or my rules. It's a totally relativistic way. I'm trying to look at what do we know about young people that would cause us to act in a way to promote their psychological health and not expose them to things that would be psychologically harmful to them or physically harmful to them. That It's not like you get your books, I get my books. You don't get your books, then, you, then I don't get my books. The question is what books are good and healthy for them? But this is not a conversation most of those people are willing to have. It's all about power. Yeah, it, it does seem like a completely different category when you have sexually explicit material for young children versus religious material that could be instructive and it could be different religions. I don't think any Christians are calling for other religions, religious books to be removed from libraries. But I would also say I'm sure they are removing religious books. I'm sure there are communities that don't want religious books in their schools and they have removed them. So I like what you say, Greg, about it's not just my books versus your books. I mean, a community can have conversations about what their standards are mm -hmm. and and remove books, and there's nothing wrong with that for children. This is something we do. We protect children. We don't put every single book in the, ever created into a library. We don't fill the library with pornography. We don't there's we all understand this. So uh, I think those are two different categories and the irony yeah. is the the left is calling for the removal of all kinds of books that are ideologically inconsistent with their views. I just think uh, Abigail Schreier in her book, mm -hmm. um, um, Irrever Irreversible Damage, and how carefully written that is and how well-researched it is and how much ex concern it expresses for children and young people who are being, who are being um, abused by any standard of that. Uh, any definition of that word are being abused by by teachers and by political authorities and politicians and whatever. Yet this is a book that the left wants banned simply because it it has a different narrative about gender than their narrative. Okay, that's it. So th there's all kinds of stuff that's going on like crazy already. I just realized, Greg, I was thinking this was for a school library, but it sounds like this is for a public library, uh, but a children's section in a public library. Right, but it, this is, um, I was thinking of public library when okay. I was answering it, so it doesn't change anything so, as far as my rationale. Yeah, if you are running a library, then you are obviously going to be picking and choosing what books you have in there, and it, there's nothing wrong with having standards, but there should be a reason for removing there should be a harm reason for removing the book mm -hmm. i guess okay uh let's go to a question from seth how would you go about gardening with a friend who won't follow jesus because that would mean as an evolutionist he would need to believe in creation and in his words this would add incoherence to the universe all right you have a confused look on your face and i'm going to take a guess at what i think he's talking about I suspect what he means is— <laughs> Why do you think I'm confused? They, <laughs> but first, translate that one and then show me why you're misunderstanding. So go ahead. What, what, what do I think he's saying here? No, what do you think that I am confused? What, what is why, this, why would this add incoherence? 
Is that, yes. is that your question? Yes. That's, why would not believing in evolution create an incoherent world when I think it's just the opposite? Right. Okay, so, so you're right on to me. Vulcan mind meld, fine. <laughs> so to save me responding to that, you're going to clarify what you think that Seth means. I, I suspect what he means is that if there is a God who's creating, then we can't what can we learn about the world? Because God could do anything at any time. So I think that's what he's, I I suspect that's what he means by adding incoherence. Okay, so let's take the charitable uh, route here and I'll respond uh, to that. And then I might say something about the other. But um, what's very interesting, and I actually went at length in uh, the new book, Street Smarts, coming on September 12th. I'm just going to keep pounding that. Um, that in in my chapter on science and Christianity, uh, to make the point contrary to this issue, that why science started precisely because, and, and when I say science, uh, if you look at all the individual people who are founders of the scientific method, physics, botany, genetics, you know, pneumatology, uh, not pneumatology, but uh, Numas, I can't think of the I'm right not word. Sure. What, what kind of you know, like uh, like like um, um, you know, I, never mind. I can't <laughs> think of the right word. I can't even think of how to describe it. But all of these things, you know, um, chemistry and astro and all this, these are all Christians who were convinced that God existed and He had created a world of order that could be discovered in virtue of the fact that was orderly because God created it and gave us sensory faculties that allows us to assess the physical world with some degree of accuracy, okay? It is precisely the conviction that there was a God and that things were not just all wild and chaotic, because what it, even the laws of nature that we observe having been consistent in the past, how can we argue that they will be the same in the future when nothing is managing them or controlling them. Well, they always have been, but that's the that's the problem of induction. You can't say the future, the past is the future will be like the past in those regards. But if there is a God who made the world in an orderly fashion, with 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 patterns in Genesis one, there you got the sun and the moon. That is for measuring times and seasons. Just to give one example. But the, the the conviction that the world is a certain way because an intelligent God had made it that way is the is an epistemological foundation for the entire scientific project. God wasn't the science stopper. He was the science starter. And therefore, almost everything that we look at and assess, with very minor exceptions, they're important exceptions, but minor exceptions, are going to be examples of uh, a cause and effect happening based on regularities that God has placed in the universe. Okay, so uh, the the pen is writing here, as we're both writing things down in paper while we're talking, not because God is pushing ink through the thing, but because God has set the world up in a certain way so that this you make things that operate this way. The exceptions are going to be miracles, when when a, a very unusual event happens because of God's intervention, that's all. It's not a violation of the laws of nature. The laws of nature don't even apply there. God has just simply intervened and, and done whatever he's wanted to. 
apart from the the normal series of events, and that's for a particular reason. And the other one are unique events, like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of consciousness. These are things that defy naturalistic explanations, and therefore it's reasonable to expect that there was an intelligent designer that intervened in those significant episodes uh, to do something that the, the, the natural process of cause and effect couldn't accomplish. Um, so that's like to your take on the question. I do want to make a point, though, that the word God is creator or creation is ambiguous because there are two ways to understand that. One is just simply as God is the creator. The other one is creation as a, a young earth characterization of creation, which is hard for a lot of people to accept because they think the science about the age of the universe completely goes against that, and so it would be believing contrary to fact. So I'm just making the point, if the person is objecting to creation because they think to be a Christian they have to be a young earth creationist, that's not necessary. And in fact, to be a Christian doesn't mean they can't even be a Darwin, Darwinian evolutionist, because there's all kinds of people like that. And actually, Bill Craig, who doesn't hold a, a Darwinist view at the moment, he's a, 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 um, agnostic on it, he has gone to great lengths to make the case that it's possible to believe in Darwinian evolution and believe in the God of creation and in Christianity. And there are a lot of people who would, who are, I have no question that they are regenerate, who believe in evolution. Now, I think Darwinian evolution is false on the merits, and I do think it's damaging and corrosive to th- good theology. But uh, you, you, strictly speaking, you don't have to believe, believe in some version of creationism, either young earth or old earth, contrary to evolution, in order to be a Christian. You can still believe in old earth, or you could believe in evolution. I mean, God is a creator, but he might have—I'm just speaking theoretically, I don't believe this happened, but he might have, quote-unquote, used evolution. So you don't have to abandon evolution in the Darwinian sense in order to be a Christian. All right? That's not—they're not connected at the hip, so to speak. Okay, so that just clarification on that. And as far as the incoherence, to me, the Darwinian model creates incoherence on a number of different levels. If the, it, it just does not explain the complexity of life. It has a model that is meant to describe how it happened, but it hasn't shown us happen that way. And you can't just look at some examples of natural selection that seems to improve the uh, ability of something to get its genes into the next generation, and then look at the eye and the blood clotting system and the ants who parade back and forth doing all their things, or any particular detail of the entire natural realm, and conclude, yep, this is really the most reasonable conclusion is that this happened by an accidental process of natural selection working on mutations. It's that's ludicrous. It's just ludicrous given the radical complexity of all of these things. And, uh, and time isn't going to help. And uh, reagents isn't going to help. They've done the math on this. It's just not going to help. So, And also, what do you make of human reasoning then if all of our mental faculties came about by an accidental process? C.S. Lewis has pointed this out. Um, so has um, 
uh, Alvin Plantinga, and a bunch of others, too. And if we are believing, um, if our if our capacities to to believe something are only reflective of the Darwinian influence that causes us to believe these things, then it's not causing us to believe them because they're actually true. Because evolution doesn't choose for truth, it chooses for survivability, getting your genes into the next generation. This makes reasoning and knowledge incoherent. This makes the incredible teleology of the universe and biological life incoherent. Nothing is as it seems. Nothing is as it seems. That, to me, is the chaotic Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I just want to underscore the idea that you pointed out, Greg, that science developed in the West because of belief in God, because there was no capricious forces behind the universe. There was actually order at the very center of the universe, at the foundation of creation. And because there was order, that means then we could discover that order, which is why this developed. Mm -hmm. And I actually wonder what will happen with science, because right now, we're kind of running on the fumes of Christianity in terms of science. But what will happen is people reject God, and then suddenly they have no reason to trust their faculties, their rationality, any of those things. There's no worldview reason to believe that there is order. I I suspect things will start breaking down ultimately. Look at what's happening in this in STEM in those areas. What's that science? I always forget. I'm not even sure. No, you say that. Technology, engineering, engineering, and math. Okay, with all the wokeness, it's all going woke. You have doctors who are training people in the UC, other interns in the UC system that are apologizing for saying the woman was pregnant, as if only women get pregnant. It's like it's a they yeah because everything's relativistic now. It's all about feelings. Then now even the STEM areas, though they are last to be influenced, they still are being deeply influenced by this nonsense. Right, because if we create our own reality, then what is there to discover at that point? Now, of course, Seth, we have been guessing at what he means. The first thing you need to ask him is, what do you mean by that? Make him first explain how this adds incoherence to the universe, and then you can make sure you answer the question that he's asking specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So hopefully it's close to something we addressed here. (laughs) Yeah, what do you mean by incoherence? What do you mean by creation? What do you mean by evolution? What do you mean by you can't believe in God or Christianity if some of those are true? Why does that seem to be the case for you? Spell it out. And by the way, this is where, you know, when I teach in tactics. It, it This particular question is so important. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Get them to talk more and more and more to clarify specifically what they mean. And when they are, in a sense, forced by your gentle but genuine questions to be more specific about what they mean, lots of times the, prob- the, the, the challenge solves itself when you get more clear on these details. Mm-hmm. It's the ambiguity that's the a big part of the problem. And then one last thing I, I notice about this question, he won't follow Jesus because that would mean X, Y, Z. The question here is not what would that mean for my life or whatever. The question is, what is true? Mm-hmm. So that's another thing you can bring up. Oh, great point. So if Jesus really is who he said he is, 
then would you follow him? And then you can work out how all these other things work. But if you want to know the truth about the universe, you don't pick one thing. You don't reject one thing because it might affect how you see something else. Mm -hmm. So just make sure that he has that. And it may be he means something different in his question. But so that's why you ask him what he means by that. But make sure he understands that you don't decide on truth pragmatically. You decide on it on what actually is. Well, thank you, Ryan and Natasha and Seth. We appreciate hearing from you. Send us your question on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go through our website on the hashtag STRask podcast page. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.